Welcome to the Performance Connection Podcast, the show where we connect you to the highest quality information and leading professionals in the world of human performance. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Performance Connection Podcast. Today, I am joined by Cam Joss. Cam, how are you doing? I'm doing great. It's good to see you again. It's been a long time, so it, I'm glad it's we were It's been a while, show. yeah. I think the last time we saw each other in person was 2019 Sport Movement Skill Conference, I think. That's, yeah, that's what I was thinking. It, it, I think it was yeah. the exact conference, and it was probably that same year, yeah, 2019. Part, part of that is embedded in my brain because, well, you did kind of like a small-sided games for football presentation. Yep. And I was a participant. That's and, right. As I am apt to be in most of those situations, but so was Jordan Newsma. Yeah, he was. And Jordan, so we were both collegiate athletes. I was a Division three athlete that didn't play, and I think he played at Concordia and did play. So there's the mismatch right there. So we got, I don't know what game we were playing. We got matched up together, and I just got smoked. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, dang it. But uh, yeah, that that's, gosh, it's crazy. That's been a few years ago. So a lot has changed since then. And yep. we'll definitely dive into some of that. But before we get there, Cam, just go ahead and give your background, you know, what you've done professionally in your past and then what you're, what you're doing currently. Sure. Yeah. So I think probably the easiest place to start is that I guess what I was initially known for was my time at DeFranco's training system. So I started working with Joe DeFranco professionally in 2013, right after I'd finished my undergrad. And so Joe was a guy who he had always been a mentor to me. I had actually trained with him when I was in high school. So I I full on do credit him for my ability to even play college football because I was a, a skinny 160 pound kid and he got me to 195 and, you know, I was able to go play defensive back in college. And so I finally mm -hmm. had just something about me physically. And so that that's when I first, I first fell in love with the whole physical performance side of training and preparing for sport just through my experience working as an athlete with Joe. And so when the opportunity came after I had graduated with my degree in kinesiology and, and studying all that stuff, the opportunity came to go work with him. And I just, I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, like he was my number one mentor at the time. And so started working with him in 2013 and, and spent seven years with him. So essentially Started in New Jersey with them, had a stint in Austin, Texas with the Franco's gym down there, and then went back to New Jersey. And so that went all the way until 2020. And then in 2020, which was the the COVID year, I, I yep. made the transition to working in the team setting with college football. And so I had actually taken a job at UNC Charlotte at the start of 2020 before the pandemic really hit. And so I was there with Chris Laskowski, who was a head strength coach there. And I want to say I was there for about two months or so working through inner <laughs> workouts and all that stuff. And then I ended yeah. up getting a call from Aaron Wellman, who at, at the time was the head strength coach of the New York Giants. So I'd gotten to know Aaron pretty well, just being in the New Jersey area, North Jersey area near where East Rutherford was and, and MetLife Stadium and the Giants facility and all that. And so I'd gotten to know Aaron pretty well. And he gave me a call because he was leaving to go to Indiana University. And so he asked me if I wanted to go with him there and my relationship with Aaron was strong. And so I just felt like that was an experience I wanted to undertake. And so yeah. I 
ended up leaving Charlotte, going to Indiana after you know only a couple months. So it was kind of a crazy transition. Yeah, Meanwhile, sure. in the middle of all of that was COVID. So mm-hmm. it was just the start of the pandemic and all that. So when we got to Indiana, you know, it was like we thought we were going to work with the players the next week. And <laughs> we didn't end up seeing the players until probably like three months later. Yeah. It was a crazy transition. But So I was at Indiana with Aaron starting in 2020. It was the first season there. And that was a, a good season for Indiana. Crazy season. It was like Big Ten had canceled the season and the season was back. Oh, they brought it back. Yep. Crazy to think about how the first game we played that year was October 24th. It was on my birthday. And so it was oh, wow. like, it's just weird to think of game one yeah. being at the end of October. But, but that was a fun year. And so then I was there the 21 season, the 22 season. And then I received a phone call from Don Sadzinski, who had been the head strength coach at Liberty University. And so he was with head coach Hugh Freeze, and they had just taken the job at Auburn University. And Dom was a guy that I had gotten to know in the field, actually had interviewed with he and, and the rest of the staff that was with him when, when he was at Ole Miss under Paul Jackson. And I didn't end up getting the job, but I had built a good relationship with Dom through that process and stayed in touch with him. And so he called me with an opportunity to come, come here with him to, to Auburn university. And so ultimately I, I decided that was probably the best move for, for me and my wife and our family and all of that. And so I've been at Auburn now since January of, of 23. And so it's been a good journey going from the private sector into the college and, and just, you know, especially being extremely fortunate to be able to have coached in the big 10 now being the sec and, you know, just the highest level of college football. And it's, it really is a blessing. So I'm grateful every day for it. And in the middle of all of that, I'm still trying to work on some academic things. And so I'm currently pursuing a PhD. And so I'm working with Dr. J.B. Marin out of St. Etienne in France, University of St. Etienne. And so trying to find some answers that can help, not just me, but uh, coaches throughout the field as well and in terms of speed training and, and best practice, yeah. things like that. So that's yeah. where I'm as well. That's awesome. So do you have a, an identified dissertation topic or where are you at that process? Essentially what we're trying to do is nothing, nothing immediately groundbreaking on paper, but we're seeing if anything comes from it, which is essentially we're first, we're going to start by just trying to help add some fruit to the tree of the literature associated with mm-hmm. describing sprint performance in American football specifically, because it's something that's so valued in the sport. But there's a lot of research that seems to be scarce. And so we're bringing a lot of the work he's done into it. So a lot of the, the force velocity profiling, the kinetic profiling of, of players and how they uh, distribute force and what their velocity curves look like and, and all of that side of things. And then on the other side, he wants to tie it into a lot of the kinematics. So just to get a better understanding, you know, the way in which football players sprint what compared to say, you know, an elite sprinter or some other sports and, and is it, is there something there that's unique or is it more along the same lines as a sport like rugby, for example, and but what are some of the ways in which they need to perform from a speed standpoint so that it ties in the technical tactical side of what they need to do? You know, just a brief example of if I'm closer to the ball, my rate of acceleration probably needs to be much higher than my max speed, you know? So it's more about going from zero to 60 as fast as I possibly can more so than, oh, I can eventually reach 120 or, you know, something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. So it, just trying to better put some stuff into research and literature to describe those things. And then we also want to look at the relationships between how the force velocity metrics tie into 
what we're seeing from a kinematic standpoint. So what are some of the shapes and body positions and segmental aspects that go into how the outputs are achieved, you know, on a force velocity mm. profile. And, and so looking at some of that and then lastly, as best we can, if we can tie it into how do some of these factors of the shapes that are being attained from the kinematic side or the outputs driven from the force velocity curves and all that, how are they interplaying with those who are at risk for hamstring strain, groin strain, mm. just some of these soft tissue injuries that seem to pop up from high speed running. So yeah. we're trying to tie all that together under the specific context of American football, essentially. Okay. Wow. That's hefty, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, I kind of joke. I'm just like faking it till I make it. I'm just like in so in over my head with it. But at the same time, like I'm, it's really cool project and, and I couldn't have asked for a better primary mm. supervisor yeah, candidate. No doubt. And then my co-supervisor is Dr. Ken Clark, which is just, again, like the two of those guys, I get to have Zoom calls with them periodically and we're just chopping it up and they're teaching me how to do all this stuff. And it's such a blessing. Yeah, you you named the two guys right there that you definitely would want. And uh, okay, so Ken was one of the early, early guests of this podcast. Actually, he discussed basically like high impact strategies for improving sprint technique. But in that episode, he actually talked about some research they're doing at Westchester on this aspect of combining what we know about what makes somebody fast and the technical tactical aspect of sport. Yeah, basically try to answer this question. How good is good enough when it comes to sprinting technique and trying to push to that sprinter model? And now you're doing some similar things, it sounds like, with trying to investigate this question with this overlap of what do we do and how what do we do with maybe more the classical sprint track model of things? And what does that mean for the the way that we train, please? And Another guest I had on recently, actually at the time of this recording, this is the most recent episode, Tyler Yearby, mm -hmm. his research is dealing with some of similar stuff too. It's just like, I love to see in, in, in the aspect of how do we maximize in performance? Like that's like with that as the goal as strength and conditioning or sports performance coaches, our ultimate goal is to improve their performance in the game. Like, yes, yeah. we're elevating capacities we're raising ceilings on certain things but what are those things how what really matters it's just really cool to see that what i have termed i guess not i this is the term i use someone i, I didn't can't come up with it but pracademics like pracademics are getting into to, to the literature and they're doing the work and this intersection of people who really understand the applied side starting to do the academic work i think it's just an exciting time to advance the field forward so no that's really awesome but one asked like really with the aspect i love that you mentioned jb because jb's work it is somewhat of the impetus for the topic i want to talk about today in force velocity profiling so so the topic i want to talk about with cam today is you know how what are the most important factors to individualize when it comes to sports performance in a team setting. Now, obviously, Cam has worked with mainly American football. That's where he lives right now. So things might trend that way. But, you know, my guess is, well, these could really apply to any speed and power-based sport, you know. So I want to get Cam's thoughts on, you know, what he saw in the private side for how he was individualized and really tailored the training to the athlete. 
what he's done in the team side and then also you know what he's uncovered in his research so far with something like that but force velocity profiling when i was on the team side that was really the impetus for me wanting to individualize as much as i could for my athletes because i wanted to know i was giving them what they needed not just like is everybody's max going up and that was my sign of progress i i just did i never felt like that was good enough so I was like, oh, this cool thing about force velocity profiling is coming out and maybe I can give an athlete what they need from a strength and power standpoint. Do they need to get stronger or or do they need to go to the other side of the curve? That kind of thing. So Cam, I guess, you know, the question for the rest of the up that sets the stage for the rest of the episode is where do you see the most important things to focus on when it comes to individualizing an athlete's training? to support their performance on the field or on the court, whatever it may be. So I'll kind of turn it over to you and I'll interject where I can or where I have questions, but I'll go ahead and turn it over to you and let you go with that topic and where you think the most important aspects are. Yeah, I mean, I'll speak from my experience and my current thoughts, and these are always subject to change as as time goes on and more investigations are, are performed. And so I think for sure. So I, th- I think of it from two different perspectives. One is the training age of the athlete. And then two is the specific just sport dynamics associated with that athlete, with what that athlete needs to do. And so the reason I say that is because let's say we, let's say we did a force velocity profile on an offensive lineman and it showed up as he was velocity deficient. Okay, great. But so, so what am I going to do now? Am I going to go say, okay, he's velocity deficient. I need to go take this 300 pound guy and go have him perform assisted sprints and just tow him as, as fast as possible down the turf. <laughs> it's just because I need to get his velocity side to go higher. Well, well, no, because, you know, we can profile him and look at it and look at the relationship. But if he's velocity deficient, that it almost doesn't matter because he doesn't need velocity for his position. So it's almost like if I'm looking at the relationship between force and velocity, and when you look at the the relationship between those two as it relates to JB's work and Sam Azino's work and that whole team of people. And basically when they're, as it relates to sprint performance, when they're talking about force, it's really mass specific force, like what Ken Clark talks about too, which is really referring to acceleration. Like how, what's my acceleration capability? So, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. And so acceleration equals force divided by mass. So if you look at the F0 or that F theta or F naught, whatever you want to call it, that, that, that force metric associated with the sprint performance, that's really just referring to acceleration because it's Newtons per kilogram. So it's force divided by mass, which gives you acceleration. And so when I think of it from that standpoint, if I tie that back to an offensive lineman, mm-hmm. if he's velocity deficient and he's force dominant, that's good. That's what we want. because we want him to be acceleration dominant. And if anything, I actually probably want to tip the scales even further in favor of acceleration. Like I want that thing to be as high as it possibly can, because this guy's got to fire off the ball Mm -hmm. and take two, three steps and go collide into some. And obviously there's everybody's, they love to talk about, well, what if he pulls around or what if he hit the screen and he goes to the next level? Great. That's, you know, a small percentage, extremely small percentage of plays that are going to happen in a game where he actually has to get out into full full space like that. But for the most part, it's just his ability to rapidly initiate 
acceleration, overcome as best as possible the resistance, gravity, inertia, and his own body mass in order to accelerate himself in a given direction. And so that's where I think with the force velocity profiling, people just, they need to understand it in context and be a little bit uh, careful with it. And the other thing I think about it is that people try to, they treat it like a crystal ball or something. Like it's just, it's giving them this definitive answer of what to do. Where I look at it more as it's providing a less shrouded roadmap, you know? So I went, I just went from, maybe I went from uh, MapQuest to Google Maps or something. So it's like, <laughs> it's still about, like, it's kind of helping clear the picture up a little bit, but it's not, it's not just giving me this definitive answer of what to do. It's providing some ideas of what is happening in that given time. And so it gives you a suggestion of what allows that athlete to do what they do when they're sprinting and, and, and how they're able to express themselves in a speed environment. And so like any, like anything else, athletes can compensate in certain areas. They can, maybe they're not really fast when it comes to the high velocity side of things, but they can shoot out of the can so well that they kind of mask it. So somewhere in between they're sure. still able to go, they're still able to go from point A to point B, just like the next guy who doesn't start as well, but he picks up really quickly as he starts going. And so it just gives you some ideas as to how different athletes operate in that, from that standpoint. But I think that what we've all been guilty of is wanting to be almost too individualized. What I mean by that is tying it back to the athlete's training age, which I've had a lot of conversations with Mike Boyle about it, you know, because mm. of his experience being in the private sector and, and just the range of athletes you see in the private sector from, you know, middle school to high school, collegiate, professional all different sports and all of that. And Mike has something he likes to say, which is like, your sport is not that different from the next one. And which the sport itself can be completely different. But I think obviously what he's saying is that the human body is the human body. And so we need to develop the human body as, as it's designed to function. And so that's essentially where physical training starts. And so I think when you're dealing with an athlete of a younger training age and so JB Marin, he calls it the toothpaste tube theory. You know, like it's, <laughs> if I'm squeezing toothpaste out of a, a toothpaste tube, when I first buy that toothpaste, it's full, right? No matter where I squeeze, a toothpaste is going to come out. Yeah. But as I get towards the end of that toothpaste tube, I need to find different angles and different points of pressure and all that to get that last little bit of toothpaste out of the toothpaste tube. And so it's a really good analogy for how it works. So if I have a full tube of toothpaste, I'm trying to individualize right now, it's probably inappropriate. Like if I'm over individualizing training for this person, maybe it's, I can squeeze that tube from anywhere and find some results. Like toothpaste will come out. Right. And sure. so, and I think that at the, in college, like where I'm currently working in the university setting, you're somewhere in between where you don't have a full tube of toothpaste, but you also mm -hmm. have more than some people might think that you have. And so, and that's a good conversation I've had with Sean Mishka and, and people like Tyler Yearby and that, that team of, you know, the way that they're looking at everything from the dynamic systems perspective and ecological yep. systems and all of that. It's a good conversation with them because they, we've discussed how you can still, you can train college football players in so many different ways and still, and they're still able to find success in the sport. You know, like there's just so many different ways to go about doing it where if you go from university to university, a lot of common denominators are there, but the specific, just the way in which their training is going to be probably somewhat different from place to place, even though the underlying common denominators are all there. You know, everybody's lifting, everybody's running, 
everybody's jumping or whatever to some degree. But, you know, Sean's point was basically you're able to get away with being a, a little bit more all over the place in college and still find success on the field because, you know, toothpaste tube is still fairly full. They're still developing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you have a, a when you have somebody in the professional ranks, they're already at the professional level. And so now it's about finding ways to get that last little bit of sports excellence out yeah. of them. And so that's where hmm. when I was in the private sector, I was able to be as individualized as I wanted to be. But the times where I took it to the next level of really trying to put it under a magnifying lens was with my pro athletes. And also with my college athletes that were training for their pro days and all of that was yeah. just was being able to, I need you to run as fast as you possibly can for this test. So I have to get as, as specific as possible for you. And I think that's where the private sector is really, it's really advantageous for those athletes yeah. is to go and, yeah. and go to a place like that, that can do that for them. Um, but yeah, where, where I'm at now in, in the university setting, I think it sounds catchy to go to a seminar, stand up there and present and say, we're being super individualized for every one of our players here. And I think to a certain degree, we're all aiming to do that. Obviously, we need to take care of each guy as best as we can and find his limiting factors to performance to go from there. But I think what immediately becomes more practical, in my opinion, is to have a battery of KPIs, key performance indicators, or tests that you utilize that give you information So for example, let's say we do a force velocity profile and we look at all of our defensive backs, we'll say, Mm -hmm. or all of our skill guys, defensive backs and wide receivers. What percentage of that entire group is force dominant? What percentage is velocity dominant? What percentage is balanced? You know, because ultimately we'd love for all them to be balanced. So if I'm Mm -hmm. deficient in force, I want to get to a point where I'm balanced. Deficient in velocity, I want to get to a point where I'm balanced. So as much of those players as possible, we'd like to see a nice balance between force and velocity and maybe air a little bit closer to the velocity side because of positions that they play. They, they require more speed, right? Yeah. Where it would, be, it would be almost the opposite for like a linebacker or running back because they're more, they need to be more force dominant. They need to accelerate more. But we can look at the group as a whole and sort of get an idea of, it's almost like the 80-20 where it's like, mm. Can we get 80% of this group to be where we want them to be in terms of what that group needs in order to perform in the sport? And also just generally speaking, as measures of high performance that we determine from our key performance indicators, can we get them to be where we want it to be the majority of them? And then the rest of them, we start to investigate further for, for those people because you could come out the gate and try to be super, super individualized with expert training, we'll say. Yeah. Or you could take a profile, do a fairly balanced sprint training program, do another profile, and the majority of them got better. You know what I mean? And so that's where I'm at now is where I think you need to, I think for, for us, what we really try to do is we try to, we try to test a lot where we can mm-hmm. and also not test too frequently. <laughs> that's another problem. Mm-hmm. So if we can get one good sprint test in the winter, one good sprint test in the summer, and then maybe one at some point else in the year, whether it's spring or some point in the season with developmental athletes or something like that, that to me gives you plenty of information where if we can be specific in our tests and then determine how across the team, how do we want to then train the team in general as a result of these tests, 
to shift the whole squad in, in favor of one direction. That's probably the most practical way to individualize it, in my opinion, in, in my setting, when you have 120 plus athletes potentially. Yeah. On the team. And right. so I think the smaller the team you have, whether it's basketball or, or something like that, or maybe you have you know less than 30 or less than 20, depending on the sport, then obviously the more individualized you can be. Mm-hmm. But I, I think a big area, I think we're all really focused on like the performance individualization in an area where I'm now trying to give a lot more credit to and investigate myself because I feel like it's something I need to learn more about is really individualizing more of the recovery restorative strategies around the training. Um, you know, like yeah. the, like helping this individual with his mobility restrictions or his soft tissue restrictions. And, and so talking with a lot of people in MLB and baseball and just these sports where guys get really beat up and trying to just keep them out there. Like it's pretty insightful to hear about that side of it. And so I think in college football, we're very performance obsessed. We want mm-hmm. more speed, more strength, more power. Oh. But I think if we have a fairly balanced program and we shift that program as a result of our testing, like we see the current state of the team and the positions associated with it. And then, okay, we're just not fast enough yet from like the receiver and defensive back standpoint, like we need to add more true exposure to speed or high Mm -hmm. speed. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that would be more of a general approach to it. Yeah. But then within that, every individual there where I think it's more important to be individualized is what's holding this guy back from like mobility restrictions. Why do we, why is he have knee patellar tendonitis? Why is it bothering so much? What are some of these nicks and, and things that come up, come about as we're training? Why does he have it versus this guy doesn't have it? You know, that's, that to me is an area that I think I would like to focus more on going forward. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so much to unpack in, in what you just got done saying, because I'm with you, man. That that last aspect was on my mind all the time. And that that starts to get at an individual's tolerance for basically training load of like we know that not everyone can tolerate the same training load, whether that's from an intensity standpoint or a volume standpoint. You know, even down to like days of the week, should they even be doing the same training split? Like all of those factors go into like if I was just programming for one person I wouldn't really care if Johnny squats on Monday but Billy benches or if Billy doesn't even squat at all maybe he only split squats because of something that we've identified that squat doesn't isn't good for him for whatever reason mm-hmm. those are just examples right but I want to back up just a little bit because you hit on something with another question that I think a lot of people the term gets thrown around a lot and you kind of hinted at a, at a scenario that I've always wondered about is the training age question. So first of all, how are you defining training age? Cause I don't think that's def, I don't think that's a agreed upon how we define that. But then when it comes to training age, you know, what were, what are we like identifying or counting as far as training? Because from a strength and conditioning standpoint, there can be a lot of, and you could correct me if I'm wrong here, but there can be pro athletes who on a certain level don't have a high training age, yet they are at the highest level of sport. Yeah. So then should they be treated like they've got a full tube, even though 
they've got physical qualities that got them to that level, yet their quote unquote training age might be low because they haven't been in like an organized training system or a system that the strength coach deems as organized. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. It's a really good point. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because that was when I was writing the process book series with Fergus Connolly, that Mm -hmm. was something that that we talked about was basically people like to throw around the word KPIs or the phrase KPIs, key performance indicators and all that, but we're limiting factors of performance and right. Mm -hmm. So Fergus had this idea and it's not necessarily his idea, but it was just an idea that we had spoken about for the book, which was to essentially put some kind of like performance passport together. So just something where you can look at physical, psychological, technical, and tactical, all those areas. And then within each area, what are the KPIs associated with those four co-actives, right? And so if we take away the other three and just think about physical, and you look down the line, you create these, these basically subdivisions of your KPIs associated with physical performance. So what do I deem in my setting would make up the physical coactive? So it could be strength, mobility, power, speed, just different biomotor abilities, let's say. And then from there, through certain forms of testing, you would then give some kind of grade to each of those biomotor abilities. So where's my strength? Where's my speed? Where's my power? You know, th- those are very, if you want to get more specific, you can say speed strength or <laughs> yeah. next strength or isometric strength. Fine. You can do that, right? Yeah. But it's a really good point because within that sort of makeup, right, to just blanket term and say training age is incomplete because maybe I have been training for 10 years, but I've been training strength for 10 years. I haven't been training power at all. I haven't been training speed at all. I've been training running, but I haven't been training speed. I've yeah. just, well, I'm, so I have aerobic capacity, but I don't have speed or I don't yeah. have the ability, the, the capacity to endure multiple speed workouts without getting torn up because I yep. just haven't done that. Mm-hmm. That's a, so you basically have a toothpaste tube for every single biomotor. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so am I yeah. tapped out with my strength? Am I tapped out with my speed or, or whatever? Right. And so that's a whole nother can of worms, but that's exactly how it is in reality. And so we're seeing it more than ever now in college football with not just the freshmen that come in, it used to be you'd get your freshmen in and depending on what they did in high school determines where they're at right now, right? Did they sprint? Did they lift? Did they do nothing? Did they just play the sport? You know, like that. So they're all over the place as freshmen. That's always been the case. But now we're starting to see it with transfers. So depending on what kind of program they had when they were at their last school, you know, were they an Olympic lift strength, powerlifting type of program and their strength conditioning. And then their running was more of just, you know, like your typical strength mm. and conditioning that the more yep. of that literal term, or was it more, we did a lot of sprinting. We did a lot of this, a lot of that. And so something that when we came in between transfers and some different players and things like they had asked, are we going to do speed work? We said, absolutely. And so when we started doing speed work where Dom does it better than any coach I've been with, which is he truly does treat it like speed work. So it might only be like four total high speed sprints, but he's going to give them full recovery between each one. And he wants as much intent behind each one as possible. 
So I want you to run as fast as you can. I want you to pay attention to how you're running all, all these things, right? And so we took some of our athletes when we got there and they were asking about speed training. Yeah, of course we're going to do speed training. We put them through an actual speed workout and they're the CNS stress of that, you know, it's not conditioning. They weren't like out of breath, but they were just like, my legs are tired. You know, like yeah. I'm just, yeah. I just feel dead right now. You know, just yeah. the, the CNS stress of actually asking you to go as fast as you can. Mm -hmm. If you've never done that before, you've never experienced that excitability of your nervous system. Yeah. Like, and jumping could be the same thing. If you've never been asked to jump as high as you can, you know, or throw a medicine ball as far as you possibly can. It's a lot different than, in my opinion, than something like even an Olympic lift, which is super explosive, but you can kind of technique your way through that to where you can find like your areas to give the effort, you know, in the second yeah. pull or whatever. And then you can kind yeah. of just get underneath the weight. And, but just something like, I just want you to sprint as fast as you can, jump as high as you can, throw this ball as far as you possibly can, like really just let it rip, yep. you know, at the maximum. That's foreign to a lot of guys. And so it's a whole different area to think about where it's like yes they are trained they've been in college football for, for four years somewhere else but maybe they haven't actually been asked to sprint as fast as they possibly can until now as a fifth year senior with us and right. so they don't have the trainability for that they haven't done it you know that's mm -hmm. a, so it's a low-hanging fruit we can get it better but it's also something where there is no training age for them as it relates to that specific thing yeah and so that's a really good point that you brought up is like, that's a whole nother thing that we need to consider. So for kind of our remaining time here, I guess where I would like to go, like I definitely want to give coaches some really, you know, tangible takeaways that they can kind of evaluate the, their programs, the way they're training the athletes. So given your experience and everything you've done up to this point, which of those aspects of training age are the most important and then within that in most important meaning they have the most important impact on like overall performance like is this person if i improve these they actually like are better on the field or like they go from backup to starters stuff like that what are the most maybe like the top three most important and then you know feel free to kind of if you can weave in how you assess those things and then, you know, if you have the high school coach who is, you've got a staff to 120, he might, he or she might be the only person to 120 kids and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's always tricky because obviously the higher the level, the more resources you have, right? For sure. Yeah. But you, I, I also want to point out that, and, and this was somewhat, you know, you didn't mention this specifically in your background. Through to Franco, you went from having all the bells and whistles and toys to not. So like, because you went from that amazing facility that DeFranco used to have, right? And then you went down to Texas and you came back, that facility was kind of gone and you were almost yes. kind of back to square one. So you've kind of dealt with both. Like you've had logistically great setup and you've had, you've been logistically limited too. So I want to throw that in there that cam i know cam gets it but he's been in all situations so yeah well that's true at the <laughs> the last private sector spot we have is a, a thousand square foot weight room one rack set of dumbbells you know and so yeah. we did have a field across the street which helps we did have the field for space sure. and all that but yeah 
at that time, I didn't have GPS. I didn't have any of that stuff to, to give me some more metrics off of which to base my program. And so that's kind of what my initial point was going to be was that, it, you know, listening to guys like, like Dan Paff and, and some of these sprint oriented people, they talk about, you know, what's the easiest way to potentially pull a hamstring while it's high speed running, but what's the best way to, to like vaccinate myself against hamstring pulls, high speed running. <laughs> so it's like I have, they call it the vaccination because I need that exposure to that and, and, and be progressed in that way intelligently so that I, I've experienced that before. So that when I then experience it in a game setting, potentially or a practice situation or something like that, I'm essentially quote unquote vaccinated against that. Like right. I've had some exposure to that. And so now we see a lot of people talking about that as it relates to uh, deceleration too, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, ACL risk and things like that. If I'm not, if I, if I haven't been exposed to decelerating and the stopping and changing direction, all of that. And so to me, there's this balance between basically that. So looking, it's always working backwards from the game. And mm-hmm. so when it comes to really putting a program together to me, it's not about starting from the ground up. It's looking at the game and Everybody talks about working backwards from it, but I mean, like truly trying to get an idea of the dynamics of the game. And so when I'm talking about sprinting or even just running in general, you know, like total yards that are being covered and things like that. Now, where I am at Auburn with what we have access to from a technology standpoint, we have, we can get it very automatically. It's right there. It's for us. Right. So we can get an idea of like how many yards we cover over certain speed thresholds and in all of that. And so it helps tremendously because we can then say in any given practice or throughout an entire week of practice, we cover just throwing up numbers, just to give an example, like, let's say we cover 20 to 20 to 25,000 yards of running throughout that week in practice of those total yards. We're actually only sprinting beyond a certain threshold. Let's say we're sprinting over 75% max speed, which could be a 10 yard sprint full speed, right? or more than that. The yards over a certain speed threshold are like 1,000 to 1,500. Of all those like 25,000 yards, yep. maybe at most, they're like 2,000 yards. You know, so we can think like, okay, but that gives us a roadmap of how much we need to sprint. But then we also have to consider like, you know, speed is in right now, right? People love to talk about sprint training, all of that. But if I'm just sprint training and I'm not doing the extensive running, the volume-based running that would prepare my athlete for 20,000 yards a week in practice, then yeah, I vaccinated him when it comes to high-speed running and sprinting, but not the sheer volume of just being on his feet. And so like the wear and tear of what's happening to, you know, his ankles, his knees, his hips, just from being on his feet for that long. Yeah. And so how do I bridge that gap a little bit better? And so starting to think about you know, how many times does he burst? How many times does he decelerate? You know, mm-hmm. how many times does he cut? All of these things. And so when you have GPS and you have access to those metrics, it, it's much more automated, right? So For it gives sure. you some sense of that. But one of the things from Aaron Wellman that I thought was huge from his PhD work was he published some papers where he quantified that. And this was back in like 2014, but he quantified Things like number of bursts, number of decelerations, number of sprint efforts, how many yards were covered. And he did it by position, you know, from each game. And so mm-hmm. it was like quantification of in-game demands, essentially. Yeah. 
And so that to me, that was like a fairly simple thing to do, but that was huge because now I took that, I literally took those papers when I was in the private sector at the time and I used them for myself because I was like, I don't have GPS. I don't have any of this yeah, stuff. for sure. I don't know. I can't measure it with my specific guys, but that at least gives me some kind of an idea of how much a running back runs in a game, you yeah. know, or how much a receiver runs, how much they spread and all of that. And so that then helped me to design some of my, my interventions and my protocols when I was in the private sector and I didn't have all that technology. And so, but I think whether or not you have that way to measure it, it's about that mindset. And so if you wanted to get super old school, like if you were a high school coach and you had access to tape, you could go through the film and it would take a long time. But this is stuff, it's stuff that I used to do before I had any of the technology was yeah. I would just kind of look and say, you know, when he breaks runs, how many yards is he covering? Or what does it look like? How many times did this guy cut? How many times did he do that? And, and just to start getting a picture, an idea of it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so if it's our starting running back, maybe you just look at him. You look at him over like five different games and you look at the average of those five games and you just say, okay, I can now create some kind of bandwidth. Like here's an average number. And then maybe I want to think about like, what was the worst case scenario number? And then kind of work in that bandwidth right there, you know? So that's kind of like where I think of it from training is I don't borrow, I don't just look at like a Charlie Francis program and say, I need to do, you know, this many yards or this many meters of sprinting because that might be not enough. It might be inappropriate. It might be too much. It's, I don't know if that's right for my context. And so it's a good place to start. Yeah. You know, it's at least something where it's like, these are kind of tried and true practices from track and field and, and whatever. But yeah, I think for me, it's about trying to understand those things more. And I think that's where it ties in with some of Sean's work and Tyler Yearby and those guys thinking about the skill acquisition side of it, you know, just trying to understand all of the big picture of what's going on. And so that's another thing where I, I struggle with that mentally a lot is hey, all these studies that are done on weightlifting, for example, and all these programs associated with getting stronger, you know, even something like Westside for Skinny Bastards or whatever from Joe DeFranco, mm -hmm. a lot of these programs were designed from information that was taken from people that were just lifting. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? So yeah. if I, like it, it, in a given workout at Auburn, we might, we start on the field, we warm them up on the field, we take them through this series of power speed type drills might be some throws in there, some plyometrics, things like that. Then we have them do very high speed sprinting. Then we have them do acceleration runs. Then we might have them do resistance sprints. And then we go to the weight room. So if I take just like a West side program and plug it in right there, those guys are, they didn't do all that stuff before they did their program. Right. And yeah, so right. that's where I struggle now is that there's not a ton of information as it relates to the totality of all the stress, you know, and right. at, what point, at what point are we like beating a dead horse with certain? And so if I want to have the, even with some of the research that comes out on plyometrics, like depth drops, depth jumps, things like that's, and they're saying, we've measured this, it's had this result. Great. Like I've improved elasticity. I've improved eccentric rate of force development, things like that. Right. But if I went out on the field and I just did a bunch of sprints, plyos and change of direction, and then I go in the weight room and I'm just crushing depth jumps, am I beating a dead horse? Like, did I not just train all that stuff out there? Did the For body sure. not experience, you know, in a very specific yeah. way. So yeah. 
that's where I don't have the answer. That's all the stuff that we're trying to investigate now is just the totality of stress. You know, Buddy right. Morris used to, he used to talk about how we, he thinks we're over-volumized in this country. And I tend to agree, you know, and so what can we cut out and where are we already getting a certain stress that we don't have to revisit it somewhere else? You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. Cause it's just kind of beating in our head. These are all the aspects of training an athlete you need to have. And that, that kind of leads into, you know, my next question. And this also speaks to something you brought up previously with the recoveries and, and regeneration side of things is, you know, is there anything that you've found over the years, you know, that could be more of an indirect indicator of how somebody is adapting to the training or the training load they're experiencing? You know, I am thinking about like maybe some of the jump testing or RSI measures where you're like, oh man, this person is toasted. And maybe everyone is kind of doing the same-ish training because, you know, that just kind of tends to happen in, in the team side. But for whatever reason, it's too much for this specific athlete or another athlete. They just can kind of keep rolling like every weekend and week out. They're just trucking along. Is there anything you found over the years that is a really good indicator of something like that? Well, I can tell you, I can tell you how we currently do it essentially. But it, again, it, we do it because of the resources that we have. So, <laughs> yeah. It's, um, well, for us, like if, so every time, every day we, every time we do a workout, we do some kind of running with it. And so from the running, we're able to get player load and, and just metrics from that standpoint. And then from there, what we do is with our athletic training team as well, is they provide feedback every day, even if it's something as small as such and such came in today with a sore knee or such and such yep. came in today talking about his low back was tight or whatever. So what, what we have as a running database is on this day, this was what the player experienced and then which resulted in this potentially. So there's like a column in there that's like injury slash pain notes or something like that. Mm -hmm. Instead of this was the player's player load on this day came in following that workout with tightness in the low back or whatever. And then, but we also look reflectively, you know, what was the day before or a sure. couple of days before, because if he had a huge yep. hit the day before, it might've been fine that day but then the next day is when he's feeling the result of that or whatever so we go back and we try to date certain nicks and injuries and things like that associated with what the loading was from the gps and so that's one way for us to do it that's practical for us obviously that's not necessarily factoring in all of the weight room training that might have been done that same day too but we kind of look at it from both ways so if we don't really see anything that would make sense from the gps okay it probably wasn't something from the run the, so what was it in the what was it in the lift that might have aggravated this person or was it from the run, but he didn't feel it until he got to the weight room. You know, mm -hmm. so it's all these little questions that we ask, but I know at DeFranco's when I was there, I used to use just vertical jump on a jump, which was, you know, now they have jump force plates and all yeah. of that to, to actually give you yeah. much better indicators of neuromuscular fatigue. But that's one, e one easy way to do it. But the easiest one we ever used at DeFranco's was, and I think it's Dr. Andy Galpin talks about it a lot. I'm pretty sure it's just the hand grip dynamometer, you know, just okay. Yeah, man, it's that thing as hard as you can until it beeps and then like write down the number. And so yeah. if you're, you know, cause your CNS starts to deteriorate, your grip strength is going to go down significantly. And so, you know, his grips not very good today. He's probably pretty tired or right. his, you just set a PR on his grip strength. He's all fired up. Okay. Huh. We can work with that. And then other ones I've heard of, Keith Caton's a strength coach that I know, and he had talked about back when he was at Baylor, how they had a, like a phone app where they would just, 
they'd press the button as many times as they possibly could in like a 30 second yep. time or 10 seconds mm-hmm. or whatever it was. And so that would give an idea of just like nervous system firing. You know? So there's, there's all kinds of different tests you could use. I think the easiest one I know I used was the hand grip dynamometer, which was pretty interesting to see. Um, was that, was, so what was it, did you, did it give you good, like reliable data? I mean, how, what, what was your experience with the correlation between that and how the player was actually feeling and or performing? Well, it was interesting because anytime you monitor stress through something external, you know, whether it's actually taking HRV to measure the internal response, or you do something like a hand grip dynamometer, there's a lot of time where the measurement tool might tell you something, but then the athlete feels differently you know like it might say their growth strength is awesome but they're like man i'm just feeling dead or vice versa like i feel great and this is saying that you are dead you know? so <laughs> yeah. it's it's always a balance so i think something i really appreciate about having worked with aaron wellman and dom sadzinski now is both of them together they were they're both really good at just like pit crew just getting them to get through the workout get through the day and adjusting on the fly. So it's like, if we're going to go try something and it just either looks terrible or they're not feeling it for whatever reason, you know, the whole room's doing clean pulls. This guy's low back is not feeling great. Can we get him in something else? Can we have him go do like, there's just something about the clean pull with the bar that's feeling weird on his back. But if we give him dumbbells on each side and he jumps, he feels fine at that. You know? Yeah. So yeah just trying to adjust on the fly as best we can. Cause the other side that a lot of people don't want to talk about is the cultural piece, which is <laughs> like, if this guy's saying like this hurts or this isn't feeling good. And I just say, yeah, don't, you just don't need to do that. You know, instead of giving him a replacement, somebody else will pick up on that who is completely fine and say, yeah, hey, you know, my knee hurts too, or this hurts too. And it's like, yeah, I need sure. to give, I need to give you something that effort wise yeah. feels about the same. Yeah. But that is going to, be pain-free for you. And so yeah. it's those two guys working with those two guys has been astronomical just to, to see how they do that in a team setting, like just yeah. getting them out of something, you know, it's all about what you have access to as well, which there's always something else you can do that can give you the same training effect is, is my point. Yeah, I know the team dynamic and always knowing that there's eyes watching you. Yeah, that matters. That matters a, a lot. And this episode hasn't released yet, but John Davis and I talked a lot about that because he has a similar experience as you of private side, team side, all sorts of different athletes. And, you know, he was talking and we asked him that question about just like, you want to individualize for whatever it is, movements, training load, how much someone spends time in the weight room, all that kind of stuff. But you have to balance that with like the team dynamic and the culture and things like that. So that's a really good point. So to 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 wrap up here, the, the last question I want to ask you is: there anything you've done in the name of individualization or in an attempt to individualize a, a, an athlete's program that you look back on and say like that was a waste of time, like that was or not a good use of it, or I definitely would not do that anymore. Is there anything that comes to mind on that front? So I wouldn't say necessarily a, a complete waste of time because you always get information out of everything, right? Sure. But I think when I look back on how I had a presentation where I talked about these four buckets that we did at Indiana when we were doing force velocity profiling and we were 
again, really specific with what this guy needs and, and all of that. When I look back on that, I don't think it was a waste of time. I think it was well thought out and all of that. But I just, when I think about it realistically and retrospectively, it was probably unnecessary is, is what I'm saying. And so yeah, to do it with the whole team, where I think if you have a select few guys who have been in your program for three, four years, and they're sort of at the tail end of their last 10% of trying to find ways to improve their profiles and all that, that's where you can start messing with that with your, some of these upperclassmen and all that. But yeah, that was, that's kind of going back to my point of let's just, let's take the profiles because that gives us individual information on each guy, but then we put them all together and see team-wide what are the trends. And then from there, that helps us determine what we want to do team-wide. And it's always going to be pushing people towards what they do, right? And sure, like I said, a hundred percent of the linemen show velocity deficiencies I'm not going to train them for high velocity because <laughs> they just, they don't need it. You know, it's just not there. But if we're looking at yeah. our skilled guys or, or whatever, like how do we push them in the direction that, of the trends we want to see? And so, yeah. and then from there, I think you, you essentially do bucket. You just, you don't go like bucket by bucket with each person necessarily. It's more just almost by off season. It's like, we're emphasizing this off season. We're emphasizing yeah. that this off season. Like yeah. one thing we, we, one thing we really found with our guys in the winter here at Auburn was yeah. a lack of elasticity, no elastic yeah. strengths, like just terrible bounce. They can't dorsiflex their foot. They can't bounce off the midfoot. Like it was just a lot of that, like guys struggling with that. And so this summer we made that a, something we wanted to really focus on with building yeah. elasticity, you know, and, mm-hmm. and building foot position and things like that. And so now when we post tested or, or tested again, is really what I should say which we did last week, if you're going through the videos and, and looking at the outputs, a lot of the stuff associated with being able to bounce off the ground has improved for a good majority of the team. So it's like, okay, successful intervention, but there's still a good handful, a good chunk of guys that yeah. either stayed the same or got worse, you know? So why is that? So what yeah. is the, the, so now we can ask, what is it about, you know, Tony over here that he's, it, not, none of this worked for him. Why is that? You know, yeah. the, so then you start finding the people that you can pull out yeah. and individualize them, have conversations with them, you know, yep. especially yep. if they're a big time impact player for you for that season. Yeah. It's like, sure. why hasn't this worked for him? Let's grab this dude. Now let's get more individualized with him. So I think a lot of it is more about instead of right off the bat, I'm going to individualize everybody. I'm going to like spend hours and hours doing that. Mm-hmm. You start, start trimming away the fat a little by... Mm-hmm with looking at team trends and then the percentage of guys that are just not getting better or they're just really bad at something. That's when I can grab that guy or those 10 guys, 20 guys and say, Hey, you know, here's a very specific thing for you to do mobility wise or training wise, or you come in on a Wednesday, an extra training session day, do these things, you know? So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with all that. Gotcha. Really quickly. There's, I guess I do have another question for you. How about mobility? Is there anything from the mobility end of things that you have seen to be very impactful for, you know, general performance and things like that? Because that's another thing I would, you know, think about with my programming is I never wanted to just have a throw it at the wall and see if it sticks approach. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of that logistically, you know, I had to spread people out. I had to compensate for that. So there's a little bit of that. But, you know, how, how about from that front? Is there anything... 
and you can make this specific to football if you want to on the mobility side that has they think has a really big impact on performance i think it's about thinking globally about how mobility works so just what are the joints supposed to be able to do Mm -hmm. and and if you can tie that into a lot of the fascial lines and some of the anatomy train stuff and all of that i think that that's a big area that i'm diving into right now is i've never really taken the time to study fascia the way i want to start studying it and understanding how integrated segments work together in like different you know coordinated structures of movement and things and so but I think it's got to be something that you chip away over time, you know? So for example, when we do our speed days, we start on the field, we do an extensive pre-activation warm-up, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and we essentially use some of the, the blocks and phrases from Altus. So we'll do like a torso activation series, which is ground-based spinal mechanics, you know, different isometric holds for the core, side plank variations, things like that, glute bridging variations. We'll do some dynamic flexibility on the ground. So I'm like swinging my legs in different directions. I'm moving my, my T-spine different directions, all of that. So a lot of it is like these PNF patterns slash fascial mm-hmm. patterns, things like that. But it's essentially, it's like, am I doing like, am I doing spinal flexion and extension? Am I doing spinal rotation at the T-spine? Am I doing uh, hip rotation? Am I doing, you know, ankle dorsiflexion? So you're kind of looking at like these different segments of, of how they're supposed to move. And like, am I getting the body in that sort of position? Right. And just expanding movement capacity because something with our guys here that we found was that they struggle to rotate like, like <laughs> yeah. at all. It's like their mm-hmm. hips don't rotate, their their shoulders don't rotate, their T-spines don't rotate very well. And so that's where I think some of the fascial work is coming to play, even just like holding a med ball and doing a med ball series of yeah. like, a, you know, you can do some of like the, even like the Franz Bosch type of exercises and things with a med ball. Yeah, and maybe, maybe I step forward and I kind of rotate towards my lead leg and punch that med ball out or something like that. We started in yeah. a lot of that kind of work okay. uh, when we're on the field and we're prepping them on the field. And yeah. then when we go in the weight room, we keep it really simple where we're just doing like your typical Kelly Starrett, like band traction type stuff. Like just, so we want to get them in some soft tissue work, some band traction type of work, you know, the joint capsule mobility type stuff, specifically around like the hip, like, a lot of guys are missing hip extension. A lot of guys really struggle with internal rotation of the hip and, and external rotation of the hip. Dorsiflexion is like non-existent. That's just, crazy. Their shoulders don't move very well. It's just, there's a lot of, but then you watch them play football and they're incredibly graceful. But it's like, man, if we, just, if we could give you some of these, more of these tools to like open up your body a little bit more, you know, and get the nervous system communicating a little better through the fascial network. You know, it's a slow moving process. It's something where yeah, that's interesting, you know, it's going to take time, but yeah. it's something we try to, we try to hammer on every day, every week. And a lot of the movements stay pretty similar because there's only so many things like different joints can do. Sure. So, but at the same time, we're also, when we're lifting and things like that, we're very adamant about the positions they're in and, and is it fitting what their current level of mobility is? You know, that's another thing I really, that's another thing I really appreciate about Dom is if we're doing like a squat or even like a split squat, you know, if I'm doing a split squat and my hips start shifting back behind me and I'm dropping my chest, I'm, I don't have hip extension. I'm using basically, you know, a hinging pattern in my low yep. back to, to do that thing instead of using my hips and my legs. And so he's very good about it. if we see that we lighten it up because it's just, I'm not going to keep loading that. You know what I mean? Sure. That's just, yeah. Or, or if he's just not getting it, we need to get him in something else to get him in a better extension pattern or something. 
you know, or if I'm yeah. squatting, I'm doing a squat pattern. I don't, I just don't have the available range to, to go super, super deep. Then we won't, we'll work in whatever range that they have, or we'll get them in just a completely different exercise that, you yeah. know, that, that they can do to work that pattern. And so, yeah. um, that's what I really appreciate about him. But yeah, from mobility, I don't have a, a great answer, but it's mm -hmm. more about looking at what each joint does and yeah. can they do that or not? And can we train them to do that? And again, it's the same kind of thing where I said before we can go individual and I think that's going to be sort of like the next step to be able to do that. But still like globally speaking, all of our guys need to be able to hip extend dorsi flags mm -hmm. and, you know, just have these available ranges for them. So we're going to have a blanket approach for the team. But if one guy's just like, we had one linebacker in particular who just had no hip extension at all. And like the whole anterior chain, like through his quad up into his psoas and all that was just like a freaking bamboo stick. Like it was just so, <laughs> yeah. it was so wound up, you know? And yeah. so I, I took him aside and I said, here's like a hip extension routine for you to do sure. yeah. after every workout or before a run or whatever. And he yeah. started doing it and he's still missing a good amount, but it's drastically improved. So it's just, but he's one of those rare guys who does it. He truly tries to go after it. Every yeah. Day. Yeah. So, yeah. But it takes time. You know, he's moved for, for sure. For 20 years, he's moved one way. And now we're saying, can you fix this in eight weeks? I mean, it's just. Now he's got to, yeah. He's got to, you know, potentially wrestle with new movement solutions that he's never had access to before. Right. right. So, so yeah. it's a challenge. For sure. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. We're gonna we're gonna go ahead and wrap up. Before we do, though, I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the book, Complete Conditioning for Football. It's been out now for been out now for a few months. It's just kind of yeah. crazy. So, Cam, Cam was a contributor to a book called Complete Conditioning for Football, edited by Aaron Wellman, who he's mentioned several times on the podcast. So, uh, you can definitely find that uh, you know anywhere books are sold. And Cam, is there anywhere else people can find you that if they want to continue to follow you? Yeah. So social media wise, I've just got Twitter right now. And so my yep. Twitter name is at Coach Joss. Joss is J-O-S-E. And so on there, that's kind of where I update anything I'm doing. If I'm writing an article or if I'm putting out papers for my PhD or just anything associated with Auburn football and what we're doing there, I, I just, I put it all on there. So that's probably the best place to follow me. Awesome. Great, Cam. Uh, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Corey. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Performance Connection podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review, share on social media, and on Instagram, tag at Performance Connection Podcast, all one word. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or cure any medical condition. Thanks again, and I hope you'll keep listening or check out other episodes.